everybody, in Antonio Bay, you're listening to KB Radio 1340. This is David here, and we've got an hour of smooth jazz coming up for you with numbers from Alan Moorhouse, David Lindup, and Steve Gray, and... Oh, hold on, there's something unexpected here, some sort of a, a change in the weather. Is that a mist? Or, or is it fog? I don't know, though lucky I got two weathermen with me here, Mr. Alistair Yule and Jim Lamming. Hi, guys. Not right there. Cumulus Nimbus, Brother David. Say, either of you know the difference between fog and mist? Yeah, it's about visibility. Fog's when you can see less than a kilometre. And if you can see further, it's mist. Oh, well, that solves that one. Anyway, since I got both of you here... Let's we talk some more about mist and fog. Hey, there's not a couple of movies about those, right? Yeah, that's right. We got that John Carpenter flick, The Fog, from uh, from 1980. Then there's that Frank Darabont one, The Mist, from 2007. Hey, great. We can talk about these for a while, but before we do, what else have you guys been watching? Jim, why don't I start with yourself? Not a lot, to be honest, because um, I've been playing a lot of video games recently. Uh, Resident Evil 4 remake is one of those which is very good, but I'm not going to harp on about that because you can read my review on the website when that goes up. Uh, however, I have recently watched the latest Ant-Man film, which was apparently a box office failure. Yeah, I, I did not fancy the looks of that one at all. I thought the trailer made it look absolutely pants. What do you think, Alistair? <laughs> do, you, do you have any urge to see this one? I've seen it. Mixed feelings, I suppose. Yeah, it physically doesn't look great. It's basically shot entirely against a green screen, which I know is usually done for the most part of these films these days, but it just seemed like, even though I, f- I thought it was fine, I, you know, I enjoyed it. I didn't get bored. I, I was engaged the entirety of it, and I liked some of the characters. It just, there was, there's no soul to it. The, the, the CGI just kind of took away any life that the film had. Uh, like that, uh, uh, Modok, I believe the character was called. I remember seeing like the posters for it, and you know it, it got quite the response on social media. Mm-hmm. I didn't even realize until I watched the film that that was the baddie from the first film. Yeah, same. Like the, the same. CGI was that shit. I can't, you know, it wasn't even that obvious. But uh, yeah, it, it really makes you pine for the days of matte paintings and models. Oh, like, it doesn't it's, uh... Yeah, it's just yeah. You, you just sat there watching, you know, dramatically a good film, but visually uh, just a lifeless squib. Do you know I used to watch like the old Doctor Who's with John Pertwee and Colin Baker and Tom Baker, too many Bakers, but um, they would have wobbly sets. They were infamous for wobbly sets and sort of the bad special effects. But I always admired the. Um, the big ideas, the imagination of the budget could never equal. And I don't expect to see that in a phase four, phase five Marvel movie. 27 at this point. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, uh, phase eight Marvel movie. I do expect that the CGI should be of that capacity to equal the imagination. 
Yeah, because it's just not one of the problems we've had a lot lately where they tend to be rushing their CGI. You know, people were talking about this with regards to uh, mm-hmm. She-Hulk and Thor and even like even even Taika Waititi was making fun of this a bit before. It's not that the animators yeah. are, are any worse than the animators we previously had, but it seems like they don't really have the same time to do the projects as if we're going, okay, well, we'll do short-term contracts here, here, here. You know, we'll, we'll get these out out with a relatively short post-production. And it feels like there's maybe a bit of a that-will-do attitude. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the special effects, I mean, they're there. Um, they're creating a universe that stylistically felt it was too similar to the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Whilst it's all one franchise, technically, you're, I mean, we could look at the Guardians as their own thing, you get your Spider-Man, Captain America, Iron Man. Visually, I would say that it would be good for them to have their own style. Mm, yeah, yeah, I know, I know what you mean. It's like there was no defining what we were looking at. Visually, it's not an, a movie, it's a Marvel. Mm. And one thing that I did enjoy in Captain America was when the Ant-Man shrieking sequence, you know what I mean? You have that stages, the shrink goes down faster than the... It was a really good visual, and you had that in the first film, you had that in Captain America... And then they seem to have dropped it for this, and it's still there, but it's it's like slapped on for continuity. There's there's it's not got the same, I suppose, zip zap zoom to it. Mm. Obviously, they're going to have to be replacing Jonathan Majors as well, unless the video that he's alleged to have comes out, which we can almost certainly assume that was. Uh, Disney are yet to announce this. Yeah, in my personal opinion, uh, to verify say that this isn't legal to comment, you'd almost think a video was an intimidation tactic. On the grounds that he says he has it and then doesn't produce it when the person still retains the claims. So uh, they're going to have to replace him. Not that this is exactly the point, but he was such a good actor in the new Creed movie. Like mm-hmm. he, ad- he added so much depth to what could have just been uh, yet another kind of rogues gallery baddie for uh for Adonis to be fighting and you know he seemed like an incredibly talented actor but an absolutely horrible person to have to be on the same set as time will tell i suppose uh we'll see what the outcome is um it, i almost hate to say this but it, it doesn't appear like people are running to his defense no not at all now i don't know the comics here but i understand that kang is going to be this sort of phasey equivalent of thanos but also that Kang can take on a variety of different forms. So I assume that he can be replaced. Yeah. In my personal humble opinion, I think this is to the detriment of the Kang character. Because you saw what it took to defeat Thanos a lot. And mm. but because of the Kang character and the nature of him, and that he exists in multiple parallel universes, and he's aware of each of them and all of them, Every time you kill him, you diminish the threat of Kang. Does that make sense? Mm. Like how how threatening is the Joker when after you've killed him ten times, or how threatening is I don't know Darth Vader if you kill him ten times? Do you know what I'm saying? So is it a bit like Jet Li's The One? Oh, I remember Jet Li's The One. <laughs> I, I know what you mean, but if you're going on the assumption that killing off other Kangs makes the other Kangs stronger. Well, a reverse of that, sorry. They, they've, not, they've not established that. <laughs> You're just basing off against each kind. So I just touched very quickly on Modoc in that 
I've not read the comics, and I've heard a lot about Modoc being mistreated, and that he was done for comic relief. Now, watching the film myself as just the movies, I quite enjoyed Modoc being mm. the guy from the original film, and I thought because I've always known from what I've seen of Modoc, massive head, spindly limbs, or atrophied limbs. And the idea of the villain, he's shrinking down, but not all of him shrinks equally. He was left the big head. I like that idea. And maybe enjoyed the Modoc character in this. Having said that, as I've not read the comic books, and there's a lot of fans who have enjoyed the Modoc and the there's been a bit of backlash that the character wasn't done justice. I'm curious now to actually read the comics to see what the Bordock character was supposed to be in comparison to what we got. And I know that one of the issues is I might end up liking the comic book <laughs> Bordock and hating the Ant-Man films and kind of like the Ant-Man films. His superpower is shrinking down and going big. It's ludicrous. <laughs> he, he was a lot of fun. He was the best part of uh, Captain America's Civil War. I mm. really enjoyed him, and he's played by a great actor. Jim, anything else you've been watching at all, sir? Yeah, I recently watched the Lynch Oz documentary. It was quite an interesting film, which explores Lynch's fascination with The Wizard of Oz and how he conveys that in his own films, which, you know, you don't need to be a film student or have gone to film school to notice that in a few of his pictures. I mean, Wild at Heart is probably the most yeah, on the nose one. that's the one that has immediately <laughs> yeah. came to mind. But the way it was presented, um, it was cut up into different sections and each section had its own narrator one of which where it peaked for me personally was john waters you know i've got a lot of time yeah. for that guy and uh, it, it was very interesting because he incorporated a lot of his own stuff into that documentary and because they came on the scene around the same time uh, he even mentioned how eraser head and i think it was pink flamingo's debuted at the same time the cinema so he you know he had a lot of love for david lynch and going forward like he you know appreciated that they helped each other get out there to you know a wider audience and that was really endearing and quite fun to watch but then it ended with the guy who made the live action pete's dragon movie and he just talked about the live action pete's dragon movie far too much for a documentary about david lynch <laughs> <laughs> So um yeah, it's it was nice just to go over like the similarities of his films and The Wizard of Oz, which is also a great film. I love that as well. And you know, the the connections to Americana, the idea of twentieth century American ideals and so on and how they are peeled back in David Lynch films. And you see the CD on the belly of that and so on. So, yeah, that was really good, uh, really interesting. But as I say, it was just brought down by a couple of odd bits. Maybe went a bit too far up its own ass at times, but yeah, otherwise a decent mm. documentary. Alistair, have you got anything you want to tell us about? Succession. It's fucking good, isn't it? It's such, it's such a good show. Point yeah. of recording, there's one episode left of this show and my gosh it's gonna i think this is gonna go down as like a kind of classic of the era it's good pointing out david because it's 
hopefully not a spoiler for me to say that I'm going to be the one that wins. Um, <laughs> if you believe that, then you're listening to the wrong podcast. There's, I think there's a certain style of quality in the sense of shows that the golden age of television, which arguably was kicked off by The Sopranos and Breaking Bad helped maintain, I, I would say this TV show is something that I would certainly want to include in that. I think this is obviously something that's a matter of time, you get the golden age of animation, like in the early late 80s, early 90s, Disney and this being the age, golden age of television, I would say this show's definitely one that, if the golden age was waning or deflating, this has brought it back to life I can't, I literally can't wait for the next few days, I want to be put into cryostasis until Monday Oh, God, Mondays could be one of those stay off Twitter, stay off Reddit, all fucking day ones. Ignore the internet. If a a show is so good, you have to ignore the internet. The show's doing something right. The last kind of significant finale is is Game of Thrones, right? In terms of what the sort of biggest shows around have been. What are you doing? Why are you doing this, David? Why are you doing this? <laughs> Why? Game of Thrones obviously went somewhat off the boil before it finished. Whereas I think with uh, Succession, you know, going into this as fans, we're sort of going in with the kind of confidence that this is going to land it. You know, this is going to do it properly. Yeah, I, I. To be honest, I mean, I know I joke with the Game of Thrones things, but I think they've got one episode left. There's no evidence ever in any of the previous seasons or episodes that they're going to get this wrong. Yeah. I mean, it's been consistent quality from the beginning. It has. I think, like, to put, because, I mean, as you may know, I have my own theories, but I know that that might not happen. But this is one where I think they're not going to do a Daenerys Targaryen. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, the ending is going to land because it's going to work, even if it's not going to go the way I think it will. Greg's going to win. Yeah, I'd like to think we'll go, oh, you know, who's got a more interesting story than Greg the Egg, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but this is it. I see, I just support that character, and you're, we're all allowed to have our different views. The interesting thing about Game of Thrones Season 8 was it was universally bad. I've not met anyone that likes it. I think with Succession, it's too late in the game for them actually to screw up. Oh, yeah. I mean, they've gone from strength to strength. This last season's been the best one, I think. They know what they're doing. As a a viewer, I think there's a sense of comfort in the fact that I know that I'm in safe hands. This is a creative writing team that they know what they're doing, and they know know what they're doing here. Something you were less impressed with, I believe, was Cube, the remake. I wrote a review about that. It's on the Mm. website. Mm-hmm. I didn't give it many stars. It's horrorcultfilms.co.uk, everybody. Um, yeah, so what do you think of uh, Cube the Remake? And, uh, is this something you'd, you'd recommend at all? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll be honest, there's no point being about the bush. Uh, I would recommend people watch the original. Mm. Now, the original has a sort of made-for-TV feel to it. Ignore that. Ignore its budget. As I say, I, I grew up watching like 60s Star Trek where Captain Kirk is swinging very slow punches at a bipedal lizard. It's, you know, that sort of thing. The original Cube was 
actually a very good film for the imagination and what they were trying to do. The Japanese remake, and I will say that I went in, I said, let me do it, let me do it, I'll review this film, let me do it, because I wanted to see this film. And I wanted to like it, and I wanted to enjoy it, and I did not. Hmm. It reminded me of, you know, sometimes when you read, you write a review, and then a few days later you think of something else, and it's like, oh, wish I'd put that in the review. What occurred to me was, like, this is like Hellraiser 5 or Hellraiser 6, where someone's written a script, but will market it as a Hellraiser film, so we'll shove Doug Bradley in there. Mm. And anyone who's listened to our Hellraiser reviews will know how that went. It's still too <laughs> soon. I'm sorry, bud. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll no more flashbacks, I'll back up. Um, it's Cube, the Japanese film. I've got a very strong impression that there was a writer, a creative mind in Japan, who had an idea for a script, and the only way they could just get it across that line to get it funded, to get it directed, to get acted, to get everything you need to make the middle movie actually happen, was to put it through that sort of, we'll remake this American film, because the Cube is very interested in telling its story the Japanese remake is completely invested in telling a completely different story. That is not the Cube story. And it, it shows, you can see it throughout. Um, numerous things are baffling in that film. From five to ten minutes into that film, I was enjoying it completely. And then I started getting a, hmm, that ain't right. And then up to the end, I was like, ah, well, that film happened. <laughs> the Halloween ends experience. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love seeing Mike Myers in a sewer having a fight with a man 50 years his junior and losing. <laughs> that, to me, is quality cinema. That's how you round up a franchise. Just because the internet doesn't do nuance, I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> I'll tell you guys what I've been watching. A small list here. Uh, first off, Fast X, so 10 Fast and Furious. This is either as good or as bad as everything that's come out since Part 5, depending on if you like Part 5. Uh, I personally loved it, and I saw it in 4DX, so lots of moving chairs and so on. It was great fun. Skinamarink. Skinamarink is probably the most experimental horror of the year so far. It's a, it's a non-film in some ways. We never really see our main characters. There's no coherent plot. And most of it's just super grainy footage of empty rooms. Sounds shit, but put in your headphones, turn out the lights. It's genuinely pretty scary. Some really, really good audio designing there. And some of it is just very, very creepy. Infinity Pool next. Infinity Pool is good, but it flirts with greatness. There's some really cool ideas here. So this is uh, David Cronenberg's kid who'd made this one, uh, Brandon Cronenberg. And uh, the thing is, the human drama is really emotionally cold, and I expect that that's partially the point of it, but it means that you don't really care about the outcome. Like his other films, there's plenty of brains, but not really all that much heart. Being Cronenberg, so Scanners recently for... Uh, 
for a horror group meeting. Scanners, one of the blowing, isn't it? <laughs> one of the movies where everyone knows that first scene, and I suppose the final scene's pretty cool as well. I thought it did some admirable world building on a budget, but really wasn't very exciting. If you took out the special effects-driven bits at the start and the end that bookend it, I don't think that would be a film people talk about very much. Unlike Cat's Eye, which was the other film we watched about a horror group, I thought that was just fantastic. You know, three short films that interlock with this little cat making its way across the States, three very nice anthology pieces. Each one's got a lot of charm, and uh, overall, I just thought it was a really, really fun uh, nightmare or so. Oh, and... Uh, Evil Dead Rise. Am I the only one here that's seen Evil Dead Rise? I've now also risen with the Evil Dead. Oh, what did you think of it first? Quite enjoyed it. It's certainly it's a sequel to the first film, not or is it a sequel to the 2013 reboot? I would say it's in the vein of the original Evil Dead, not Evil Dead 2 or yeah. Army of Darkness. And until someone pointed it out to me, the original title, and this is one of the, I think, studio interference things, the original title for Army of Darkness was The Medieval Dead. That and so should have been used, yeah. so annoyed. <laughs> you, you had gold. You had gold and you threw it away. Now, maybe it's because I'm not too attached to the original series. Like, I've seen all the films, I like them. But it's just, you know, I don't really feel a sort of connection with it like I do some other franchises. And I absolutely loved Evil Dead Rise. It's so violent. It's so tense. It uses its location really well. It's pretty much just a single apartment. It's also probably the single bloodiest mainstream release in absolutely years. Certainly mm-hmm. since uh, it's kind of torture and splatter films were big things. Like, I was so surprised by how far this went. And it's just absolutely relentless after the first few minutes. You know, really rarely lets off. Some of the character decisions are a bit daft to move the plot, but I also find there's a small cast, and I, get, I give a shit about all the relationships with each other. I thought it was really, really good. Yeah, I agree. I fully agree. I don't want to be a spoiler, but the bit that made me cringe was the cheese grater on the girl's calf. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, that's always something that, uh, oh, that's bad. I knew it wasn't going to be good. And the thing I didn't like about it was the kind of botched attempt at subtext, of her, where because it's a modern horror film, they have to try and give it like a, a kind of trauma angle. And in this case, it's, I would say, a very shallow use of motherhood as the primary theme of the movie. Her going like, oh, I don't know if I'm ready to have a kid or not. And then, like, oh, our body starts doing all sorts of fucked up things and then just ceases to do any of that about 10 minutes later. Like, <laughs> I, I, it felt like there was, a, there was an attempt to, to mm-hmm. do something, but mm-hmm. it feels like it was something that was demanded, demanded for a redraft, and they did the absolute minim, minimal uh, effort to go with it. I mean, it. it's quite a jump from demonic possession to motherhood. Mm. If you were to have a child, raise a child, demonic possessions, quite the opposite of that. <laughs> certainly in a different ballpark. They they were definitely aiming for something. The the one sister that's the deadbeat, not the deadite, deadbeat. Mm-hmm. And the other sister who, who has three children. And the difference being is that they have their arguments, and I think that's that sibling arguments, certainly after watching Succession, great fun, more of that. 
that theme was giving me Jurassic World vibes. How so? Like the whole sort of, oh, can she have it all sort of thing? It's a Bryce Dallas Howard character who, you know, is running the, the new park and she's for the day, of course, having to look after her two nephews. Dinosaurs decide to dinosaur. Everyone panics and runs away. Um, but they're, they're doing this thing of, oh, you can't, you know, if you're a woman, you can't you can either pick a career or have a family. You can't have both. Mm. And they're trying to imply she had the wrong choice. Yeah. Like, was... That sort of like the marketing in the fifth, like all the men went off to war in the Second World War. Women filled up the jobs and did them very successfully. Men came back after war. Arguably fewer men came back. We have our jobs back. And there was a marketing campaign in the United States of the you know, new vacuum cleaners, Hoovers, mm. refrigerators to try and go back to the way things were pre-WW2. And despite the marketing campaign, that didn't happen. And, you know, we are where we are now in the world where we can get jobs. But I suppose <laughs> the, the difference that I'm actually trying to say is that I think for men, it's never a choice. You can have both. You can have a job. You can have a career and a family. Both can be successful. You can even have a podcast on the side. Indeed, exactly. Here we are, three men, mansplaining. But I think that the message of Jurassic World is that you've picked a career when you could have had a family. It to me it has that sort of 1950s vibes of women get back in the kitchen. Yeah, there's a, bit of, there's a bit of a like, fuck you, this would never have happened if you'd been watching out for them sort of moment to it. Yeah, if, if, <laughs> if, 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 she, if Bryce Dallas Howard was at home looking after a family instead of running park with the dinosaurs so that the dinosaurs wouldn't have attacked everyone. I have issues with that, film. On that, let's move on to discuss the weather some more. So we're going to be kicking off of 1980s The Fog. second viewing of The Fog. My memory of it was incredibly hazy, but I was surprised by how much of the iconography I immediately went, yep, yep, you know, this all feels very familiar. Now, apparently this is inspired by a visit that John Carpenter and uh, longtime collaborator stroke uh, romantic partner Deborah Hill took to Stonehenge. They looked out upon the uh, seas of Stonehenge, they saw some fog and thought, oh, wonder what's in the fog. That could be an idea for a horror film. Now, what do you guys make of the fog? Is this the first time either of you have seen it? Uh, I watched it for the first time when I was about 20, 21. So, goodness me, that was almost 20 years ago. Uh, <laughs> so, like you, uh, I'm a bit foggy when it comes to this. <laughs> One thing that stood out for me 
uh, when I first watched it was the radio station. There's just something, well, the fact it's set in a lighthouse for a start is just crazy because there was something that I just was fixated on and I would gravitated towards, mm. you know, when I first watched it. That I think that was the highlight for me was the uh, uh, the DJ at that radio station, which is a, a weird thing to latch on to considering everything else that happens in the film. I mean, she, she was probably my favourite part of it as well, good old Stevie. You know, we say, right, she's a no-bullshit kind of gal. You know, she's she's uh, she's funny. She's, I guess, our sort of host for taking us into the evening. And something that I really liked about her as a character was, you know how typically you would have this scenario where her kid's in danger so she'd run back to get them? Was I like that she explicitly didn't? She's going, look, can someone rescue my kid? I've got to stay here because I've got to warn other people to get their kids out of the fog. You know, I, I just thought that whole bit was really cool. Hmm. Yeah, that 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 uh, well, that whole section was neatly put together. But prior to it all kicking off, there was just something very. Uh, 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 this is twenty year ago. Me just finding something very hypnotic about the radio DJ. Uh, I've, I've no idea. I was watching it again a couple of days ago for this, and that being pretty much the only thing I remember about it, I was. Uh, that's maybe it's age or what. I, I was just completely mystified what cap- captivated me <laughs> about it all that time ago. There's something quite romantic about the radio, you know, the idea of like this uh, late night show. People are asl- people are all mm. asleep. This the idea that this is, would have been like in the nineteen eighties. This would have been something that, a way that people are accessing music, right? You know, you turn yeah. on the radio. Do you know that you're listening to the same piece of music at the same time as lots of other people in your local area? I think that's quite cool. In a way, we don't really have that now. You know, it, with like, say you've got like on your Spotify or whatever, you curate mm. the music yourself. You'll just stumble across all this nice stuff by accident, really. Yeah, yeah. And I, I did have a think about the music they were playing as well. Uh, it's very Fallout Free. Um. <laughs> apparently, the reason they use jazz for that was because it was far, far cheaper. It was going to be a rock oh, station. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. It was probably, no, it was probably all, like, public domain mm-hmm. stuff. But even then, thinking about it, that music would have been new 40 years ago. And to us, that would be like listening to, I don't know, Blondie or Roxy Music on the mm-hmm. radio. <laughs> 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 yeah. Uh, Alistair, what are your thoughts on The Fog? Just your kind of broad thoughts, first of all. I agree with what Jim's saying about the... I actually quite enjoyed the radio sequences in the sense that uh, there's a an idea that there is like a community out there, a community of people who will be listening to your radio station from 1am, 2am, 3am. It's not a community in the sense that like a village or a hamlet or people that live next to each other, the people that will be live, listening to this music will be truckers and people travelling for long stretches of mm. time at night. Uh, that'll be your primary audience. And that there would be a community of those people. Um, you know, some of these are maybe nostalgic about that, I think. Mm. Um, it's like it was Adrian Barbeau, who was the, you know, the station it's... head, who was... Uh, the actress was within 
New York City in Escape from New York, another uh, John Carpenter film. And of course, we have uh, alum we have alumni in this film, in the sense that uh, we've also got not Mike Myers himself, but uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. Mm-hmm. What I would say would be a returning role, not a returning role, because she's not playing the same actress, but returning for a, say, a John Carpenter flick. And the sort of the story happens at night as well, as that. Um, what does this say really is that I think the fog is that idea of what does fog do? It obscures your vision. You have that you don't know what's up ahead. It creates more unknown. And to create a horror story out of that, I think it's an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. Maybe the concept of the idea of fog being a source of horror was scarier, I suppose, what we actually got in this film. Yeah, because the fog we see is glowing green. Yeah. <laughs> Well, she's given, it's like, a, it's like a weather report. The fog's heading this way, now it's heading that way. Yeah. You're all going to die. <laughs> uh, yeah. I guess that you, you're restricted to how you can portray yeah. that at that period of time with probably the budget that they've got. Mm-hmm. Um, there's only so much menace you can make out of a smoke machine or dry ice or whatever but funnily enough going back to the nostalgia of the radio station again it does make me get a bit dewy-eyed for the days where i was able to stay up till 1 a.m you know being being past 30 years old for a good few years now that those are definitely (laughs) behind me so i kind of wish there had been more of a budget here because the whole the fog's going there now the fog's going there like that struck me as a way by which you can sort of tell this without showing it because they don't have a budget to do like here's a town centre overrun with fog and there's lots of people or anything like that. So I guess that was an economic way of doing it. But I thought one of the things that's to the detriment of the movie was the way that uh, we never, we get a good feeling for the town as kind of existing. We don't really see much of a community. Like we meet about 10 people in it or something. And I, but there is some good world building. Like one, like a very small detail that I enjoyed was you know the beginning, right? Where you've got the shop clerk just before everything starts rumbling and stuff. You've got that tune in the background. He's sweeping up. He takes out this carton and just drinks from it and then puts it back. Mm. And I was like, that's the feeling of safety embodied there. You know, yeah. the sort of place where nobody gives a shit. It's very quiet at your work. <laughs> you can just swig away some OJ, fire it in the back, and carry on. Like you know, it just struck me as a nice, lazy, sleepy town. And I just wish that we'd had more of an ensemble. Or maybe if it had just been a longer film, because it felt to me like just as it was starting to get going, if it just kind of ended, like, quite abruptly. I'm, I'm not sure it could have been longer, because I do feel like there was a little bit of filler, especially in the beginning. Uh, going through all these supernatural occurrences, it felt like they were just there for jump scares and... Yeah, oh, yeah, this is going to be spooky. It did feel like it was padded out as it was. Like I know Jamie Lee Curtis is like a, a big horror actress at this point. She's been in quite a few horror films. The Scream Queen be the term? Yeah, we'll go with that one. Um. <laughs> I mean, this is 1980s. She hadn't done too much. I mean, she her career was definitely certainly taking off. 
Yeah, I know. I know she'd been in a couple of slashes, including that one about Halloween. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know that Scream Queen's a term for uh, actresses who appear in a significant number of horror movies. I mean, is there a, a debate to be had with Jamie Lee Curtis being a Scream Queen? No, I think it was I just mean, at this point. Now, well, yeah, yeah, she definitely was, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I think there was that terror train. I think that was around the same time as well. Getting back to my point is I feel like her character could just as easily have not been in it as much as she was in it because she was just accompanying Tom Atkins everywhere and just... In terms of comic books, we have Batman. Batman was originally just him going around solving crime. The reason that Robin was introduced was to have someone there that Batman could explain crap to. I think her character is is she the Robin of this film? Oh, quite possibly. I'm not saying that it was an unwelcome character. I'm just saying given her involvement, she could technically have not even been there and would anyone have batted an eyelid? Mm. It's, it's interesting we've got the two the two protagonists never meet in this, her and Steven. And mm. I think yeah. of her, where I think of her as being like the second lead driver Tom Atkins is we've got somebody who's kind of coming into this town. You know, she's hitchhiking her way there. Yeah. The context we get from her is she's like, what, a college student that's just taking a bit of a trip across the states, you know, young rebel coming from a wealthy family, and then immediately shags Tom Atkins. Or, you know. <laughs> well, wouldn't you? <laughs> I, I, it's not the most uh, invested I've been in a relationship, put it that way. But I know what you mean. The reason I was thinking it could be longer is it just sort of felt like most of the characters didn't, we didn't really get to know them. Like Favre mm-hmm. Mahone, we don't we don't really get too much of a conflict for him about basically finding out that his granddad is a complete arsehole. And mm. uh, he's like, oh. And then like the kind of debate about whether about well, what do we do about this? You know, with her with uh, him and the mayor, right? And uh who's played by of course Jamie Lee Curtis's mum, uh, good old Janet Lee. And uh Mayor Williams, you know, she's all clearly busy, clearly very stressed, as a mayor would obviously be, and she's going, Hey, there's nothing we can do about it now. So I was like, okay, if there's a theme to this movie, and there really isn't much of one, it strikes me as it's about this sort of idea of uh, a history built on lies. You know, it's about hmm. revenge. I kind of wonder if perhaps this could have been explored more like a sort of Thanksgiving-style film, you know, where there's like an acknowledgement of historic injustice, whereas here it's raised, and most of the characters don't know anything about it, and most of the characters don't have any opinions on it. The only character who learns about this historic injustice is Father Mahone, and he immediately goes, oh, no, that, that's pretty bad. My granddad was actually a bit of an arsehole. You know, I suppose it exists as like a ghost story at the beginning, but I would have liked to see more about this idea of a town's legacy built upon mm-hmm. this. You know, we would have liked to see more about the way that, like, this is a, a, a leper colony for trying to set up, and we're going, oh, well, we're not having any of that. Um, and then, like, you know, send people to their deaths. And it yeah. annoyed me that that wasn't, that the, more, the morality of celebrating the town's founding wasn't really wrestled with more. Yeah, it, it felt like it was just a setup for getting the spooky ghosts on the mainland, mm. really. As you say, it, it, there's a lot of stuff that could be unraveled and explored from that, but they just use it to get the spooky pirates. I think definitely thematically there could be more of a connect between the antagonists and 
people living in that village. I think I know what you're saying when there's um it starts off as a campfire, someone telling a ghost story. And I I remember that watching that scene thinking, Well will we come back to this? Because my experience with movies was often when an idea is half baked, it is just half baked, and we never do mm. come back to the campfire story. I think with the leper colony idea, it's like H.P. Lovecraft's Doom of Sarnath. Humans invade Sarnath, kill the locals. Twelve generations later, they come back. Um, you can't help but feeling that maybe the bad guys had a period of victory here. It's Emperor Palpatine all over again. I mean, he won, and then for 30 years he ruled. I'm sure there's no modern-day examples. I mean, to be fair, Darth Sidious never invaded Ukraine, but there is... You know what I mean? There's examples. Anyone, in, in, the, in North Korea, as you know, right, so if you visit the uh, country of uh, of Japan, Japan, North Korea, Bit of history there. If you visit Japan, then you're not allowed to enter the capital city of Pyongyang, right? But what's also interesting is this lasts for multiple generations. If your grandparent visited Japan, you're not allowed in Pyongyang either. So it's like the uh, the sins of a grandfather grandfather get passed on to the uh, to the grandson or granddaughter. Now, the uh, revenge plot we have here. So. I thought this is a really terribly designed story because you go, okay, so they're coming back to get revenge. Only one of the people we get revenge on is uh, is in any way related to a person who they're getting thrown back on, right? So that that's already immediately a bit... It's not like Freddy Krueger, you know, where Freddy Krueger is hmm. killing the kids of the people who killed him. And the way that they introduced, okay, so we're, we're going to kill uh, six people, right? And you go, well... If we're going to kill six people and we have like, like a group of like six or seven of them at the end, there's no tension here because we've already made up half the people we're going to kill by people who don't have any names in this in the film. You've got mm-hmm. the uh, babysitter and uh, out of the three sailors, only one of them gets named, I believe. Right? So like, okay, so that's oh, yeah. the yeah. We have the. Uh, we have the the weatherman guy is not is not as well, right? Oh yeah, he his death was telegraphed yeah. before the film even started. <laughs> you just saw that coming miles off. Like I just couldn't believe that they, they actually committed to that, going like, ah, oh, if we're gonna kill six, and you go, mm. all right, so well, one character here is gonna die, and it's quite obvious it's gonna be it's gonna be uh, Father Mahone because he's the one who keeps on talking about like his 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 guilt. Mm. So. Like, it would have been nice if he just had, like, oh, they kill him. And everyone goes, why did why they all just go? We're like, oh, they only need to kill the six. And then you go, that makes sense. Because we have to believe that every character's life is in danger. I guess, theoretically, Stevie could die. But at the same time, oh, here's another thing that's inconsistent about this sequence at the end. Right? So, throughout the course of a movie... The pirates have been unable to open doors. I don't know if it's because they have hooks for hands or if they have to be invited in like a vampire. But that's a recurring motif is you're not meant to open the door because they can kill you. However, when it comes to the freaking church, they can open the door if they want to. They can come in and invite you. The pirates were Catholics. <laughs> and didn't they put the windows through as well? Yeah, you're like, there's such a simple rule of 
they have to be invited inside, and that's why we're not killing anyone. Or they can't open doors. Well, that's your basic rule. <laughs> and then you go, all right, well, we'll just we'll forget about this. <laughs> I mean, especially as if they just broken the door in earlier on to try and get the, uh, the, the babysitter rather than her opening the door. That would have been fine. Mm. Yeah, I, I get what you mean. Like, you've got this established group of main characters who should really have a target on their back but don't because when we first see the fog pirates they're attacking a fishing boat with three characters we've got no connection to mm -hmm. until we find out later in the film what their relationship is to the main characters and then everyone else apart from the uh, priest at the end again is an inconsequential character who's been on the screen for a uh, maximum of two minutes before they get killed off um and yeah i think the only bit of peril we get is stevie at the top of the lighthouse running away from mm -hmm. the uh those two other pirates there but, mm, but, but i guess you've got to also consider that this is 1980 this is prior to the uh, established genre tropes i suppose um the, the you know slashes and that sort of thing is still in their infancy at this point. I, I mean, I wasn't too fussed about the lack of violence in it. I actually thought it was quite cool that there was absolutely no blood. You know, it kept the pipes <laughs> serious of the whole thing. They, they lived in the shadows. I thought that was really cool. But it was just, yeah, it was just weird seeing a film create such, like, small stakes for, for itself. I was to guess that if you're writing a script and... There is a fog that comes in with ghost pirates killing people. How do you defeat that? I think it was mm. now I'll punctuate this with I, I like John Carpenter. He's done some good films. He has done some not so good films. I would say I would rank this among the not so good ones because I think that the pirates are here and they're only going to kill seven people. Is a way out of ex six people. It's a way. It's a way out of explaining how they're defeated, because the naturally the spooky fog pirates have to go away at some point. They can't mm. just harass people forever, and instead of figuring out a means of defeating them, stake in the hearts of Limbo or what have you, um, they just have. Oh, they they've actually succeeded in claiming the number of souls that they were after. Uh, to begin with, I mean, it's quite and they good. got their money back. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's quite good to make it, I suppose, a plot twist when they killed so many souls that oh, there's a plot twist. They've got one more to claim, but um, it, I, the whole film I see in, right, mist, glowy mist, mm. pirates. Spooky pirates. How do we defeat these things? And you don't really. You just, you just, you let them claim the amount of lives that they're after. I think you're right. That probably is a big part of it because it does feel a bit of a. All right. Well, this rule is also our sort of get out. But it's like a first draft that just got made into a movie. Mm. It's frustrating because there are some very good bits to it. Yeah. 
Like, in terms of the actual spooky sequences, now, I really liked at the beginning where you've got, like, things getting knocked over the stores, you've got TVs flickering, you've got the alarms being set off. They're able to do a sort of delayed sense of shock, you know, as it goes on, we start, we do start seeing the pirates a bit more, but it created a lot of, like, I don't think necessarily say it's mystery, but create it created quite a bit of suspense, quite a sort of creepy atmosphere, and I think the pirate design as well of the glowing red eyes was pretty cool, too. Oh, I disagree. Oh, you weren't a fan? <laughs> I, this is the... Why is Jaws great? It's a great movie because the shark malfunctioned. Mm. And they had to be very sparing with visuals. By the way, I think that's an affliction for a lot of modern films where CGI can never malfunction specifically mm. to the point where you can't show it. So we're seeing a lot of terrible scenes. Whereas you can make a great film by working around something and not showing it. CGI works on being shown. I think with this one, right, there's a shot that I really liked, and the pirate's in shadow, he turns his head, it's like green skin, but there's like maggots on the side of his face, like a rotting corpse. Mm. Great. Perfect. Thumbs up, 10 stars. The one <laughs> with the red glowing eyes, it's like, no. No, oh. ghosts are because uh, these are ghosts. I mean, it's a werewolf or a vampire that could really hold the same standards, but it's a ghost. Ghosts are that they're like a that faded photograph, that like transparent memory of what you were. Unless, unless that ghost, when he was alive, was a man with bright red glowing eyes, then I'll believe it. But that that shot, I I know you're trying to make this scary, but I I didn't like it. We can agree to disagree on that. One. I thought, I thought, I thought, we will disagree. Sure. <laughs> I, I think I, I think for me it's because it felt like a, it felt like a campfire kind of story. It felt like a sort of story you'd tell you know, like sort of tell each other as kids, like ooh, and then it was all dark, and then these red eyes flicked on, and like that, that's what that kind of made me think of. It was almost quite pulpy. Don't make but, me say that the only reason that we get the prologue of the guy doing the intro as a ghost story is to excuse the lazy storytelling in the rest of the film. I do generally think there's a bit of that in that I think they started to make a, an old-fashioned ghost story. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I, I, mean, I do think you're right that per- perhaps one of the reasons we have this silly rule of six is just as a means of ending the film, essentially. But sure, also, seven, I guess it's... I guess it's more magical. Six souls, but, yeah, I think it sticks to the... Um, sticks to, like, the sort of curse format, you know, if... Uh, Certainly the ghost stories I grew up on were all like, uh, oh, someone does like a big social transgression and then they start getting haunted, essentially. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that sort of, that, that, that kind of vengeance from beyond the grave. Uh, I mean, maybe the fog itself isn't the best villain that we could have. Oh, and by the way, this old book is a plot device. That also irritated me. Where they go, all right, this guy feels absolutely terrible about everything. But didn't, he didn't tell anyone, but did write a diary and then hid it, right? And you're like, okay, well, that's... <laughs> It's quite a quite a bad behavior. I, I think there's this line of dialogue after the diary gets read out, where we talk about how beautifully written the diary is. <laughs> like, imagine hard- well, to be fair, it, it it was a good reading. Like I, I was in I was engrossed. He, he read that really well. <laughs> pride in your work, and members' arrogance, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
But in terms of actually what I did like about it was I just really liked this kind of small town feel. Like, you know, there's a nice line where Stevie says, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's sure beats Chicago, right? We get a bit of backing story for her here. Uh, presumably she left, start with simple life fair with her kid. And I don't know, the entire time I was watching it, I was like, I could just imagine just hanging out, you're staying up all night, you've got that jazz on, you're just nodding along, you're in your happy place, wee glass of whiskey, maybe a cigar, just watching the world go by, right? You know, that's the atmosphere of this film. That I've had something I've been doing doing a bit over the last few days, is uh, there's, we've got some really good uh, soundscapes of the fog on YouTube, so you can hear like the snippets from the radio station all just playing, and uh, yes, really nice tunes on there. I thought it was, I thought it was beautiful, mm. and I just think that atmosphere is what really elevates material. You know, I don't think for a John Carpenter script, I don't think it was particularly tight. You know, and it's not, certainly not up to the standard that you'll later reach with the uh, thing, but it's also not up to the standard that you previously reached with Halloween. It's just a kind of middling entry of a John Carpenter back catalog. But at the same time, I think in terms of the visual approach and the sound design, it's just, it's really, really cool. Mm. Yeah, but the the music is really good. I liked that for the unsettling, creepy score. And then as the fog rolls in, you've got the, the fog horns in mm. the background, just adding that bit more to heighten the tension. And I did, I, I thought a lot of, it played out quite well. Um, as you say, it's pretty middling compared to a lot of his films, but I did like some of the little beats to the story, like the uh, fishermen, when they were found, they were bone dry, yet their deaths insinuated they'd been at the bottom of the ocean yeah, for three weeks. Yeah, that was cool. Mm, just, just little stuff like that. And again, the character interactions, like, yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis has only just met Tom Atkins, but they're like best friends now at this point. And you've got uh, the, the the mayor and uh, PA, the, the back and forth between them two are quite entertaining as well. So you've got all these little bits, but they just don't come together to make the full pudding, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, it's not as good as the sum of its parts, basically. With the, the, the sequence we've got the guys on the boat, actually, that, that was another of John Carpenter's strengths shown there, and that was about the sense of location. Something that John Carpenter does really well is uh, is sets. You know, like in this one here, everywhere looked authentic. You know, the shop looked mm. like a real shop, the boat, it felt like we're in a real boat. You know, the the town as a whole just felt like a real place, even though yeah. we didn't see that many people. And it's like that with even his, some of his lesser movies. Like, I don't really like Prince of Darkness as a film, but at the same time, Prince of Darkness has an absolutely exceptional set with the uh, with the building uh, we're using for it. Like, and we get to know it really well. It just feels like a real place. And that's something Carpenter always manages. I mean, uh, Mouth of Madness does that as well, you know, where you've got that town that they visit from a book. And, uh, you know, it just... it you just immediately get a feel of what this place is all about. And, uh, you know, that was one of Carpenter's strengths. It's completely on display here, just as it was in Halloween as well with uh, with Haddonfield. Oh, definitely. I like his way of... Um, so, and I will fully say that I think the fog was on a shoestring budget, but and I did enjoy this. And it, it even though, like, your brain's like, I know how they did that. 
but it did still, you know, inside have the feels of what I think John Carpenter was intending that imposing. This is the three sailors where they see the fog, first of all. But of course, then they see the sails of the pirate ship. Now, you get a boat like that, it's cheaper instead of just running the boat along and filming it. It's cheaper to actually run the camera along up at the sails and make it look like they're moving past. Mm. And you throw in your sound effects afterwards. And I do remember, like, my brain going, I know how they did this. But then my heart's <laughs> going, oh, the pirates are here. Uh, so I had those <laughs> two effects going. And, like, when you, when you get that going at the same time, it's this is not my favourite Carpenter film, but, like, I, I enjoyed that sequence I did, yeah. I think something else that really solved that sequence was we didn't get to know the fishermen at all, which is why making them for you for six is a bit meh. But at the same time, I did like the little bit of banter that we saw between them. It just kind of sold, yeah, this is, this is what these guys are like. You know, it was just another night in the boat for them. I thought that just felt quite organic. Again, very quick economic world building. Sorry, David, I just have to say this now. You've, you've made me think of something. I'm like, ah, that, yeah, because they, they only kill the six people and the three of them were the fishermen. Mm. Because like in Jaws, the shark doesn't actually kill that many people. But you know that if the shark was let loose, it would carry on. Oh, yeah, killing. yeah. And the knowing that there's a six limit, because <laughs> when you don't know there's a six limit, everyone's at threat when you know there's that limit some of them are at threat you just have to be the one not to get oh yeah yeah it's the same er thing earlier it's an absolutely terribly designed yeah. source of tension um but uh, yeah at the same time though it's still maybe it, it, it's just maybe my soft spot is it felt like a story i could imagine telling as you're Toasting some marshmallows or something along those lines. Uh, you guess what other things you want to bring in about this movie at all? It's just a few little, like uh, the location. It's a really nice rural, is it Northern Californian town? Just just little things like that. Just the attention to detail in the locations. and uh, Just some of the characters work really well. You know, Stevie Wayne's fantastic character that you don't forget, even after all, all these years. And, yeah, it's a bit of a cop-out for the only killing six. I mean, I, I suppose you could say that you know, they could come back again in the future if they wanted to, but I, I don't know. Overall, it's, yeah, as you say, fairly, fairly middling, but there's just something endearing about it, really. Mm -hmm. Got a really small, petty thing I want to complain about. That's okay, so I'm a small, petty man, right? You know the you know the bit where there's a pirate outside and Tom Tom Atkins' character Nick Nick Castle of course named mm. after the uh, guy who played Michael Myers. Now it's a bit where there's a pirate outside and he goes to answer the door. He's about to open it and then suddenly a clock breaks. Right, and then that distracts him. So what was the time? It was one a.m. Wasn't it? The thing I was wondering was, the are the pirates breaking that clock? Because if so. They've just fucked up for opportunity for a kill. Like, where do you go? Okay, so they, it's just going to break They're because pirates. of magic. They don't believe in time. They can't open the door. They need them to open the door. <laughs> right. I but, know, it breaks the rules. But yeah, so, it was yeah. it was just so strange to have the baddie 
put him off from opening the door to the baddie. Mm. Like, 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 it's like, what the hell is he doing with this? You know, but at the same time, again, there's only, there's, there's only so much I can really moan about this because I still thoroughly enjoyed watching. Yeah. I think that was just another cheap jump scare because we, mm. we got a few at the beginning compared to as the film goes on. Um, yeah, it's just because it, it, it was just loud, wasn't it? <laughs> but mm. I, I mean, I was I was fully expecting the person at the door to be like just his pal or something like that. But mm. yeah, it turned out it was actually a pirate. But they got fed up and knocking. So it <laughs> <laughs> went rude. Okay, uh, I mean, I think basically to reach the star ratings, I think we're probably on a similar page here. I'd regard this as a three star movie. And the frustrating thing about it is you can just see how this could have been a four-star film. Like, mm. there's just a few fundamental issues with it. And it's annoying because there's a lot of technical skills in there and there's a lot of really good world-building in there. And basically, a lot of things that John Carpenter can do well, he does well here. It's just, it isn't a particularly captivating plot. And it feels like it ends far too... For me, at least, it felt like it ended far too soon. Just maybe it's because it took so long to get there. It's an hour in before Dan gets killed. So at that point, when Dan gets killed, we have less than 25 minutes of a movie left. And he's the first character to get killed that we know. And we only really know him as the sleaze on the other end of the phone, some Stevie flirt. But that, that in itself is also a problem, I guess, because, you know, it's like, okay, the characters that we like, the characters, the characters that we... Uh, we, that we're going to be sticking with, we don't really see see them getting in much danger until the very last like last like ten minutes of the film. So, but at the same time, though, I just yeah, three stars because I I I know that I still like it. I just I could just see how it could have been better. I'll agree, and I would say that it's maybe John Carpenter's skill as a filmmaker that brings it up to a three star movie because the that sort of vibe, that sense of disconnected, destroyed community that you have with the 3am radio slot. There's something very endearing about that. I love the setting. I love the, there's a lot of ideas in here that I do like, and some of them are executed better than others. Um, I, I could never give this film a two stars, and no. nor could I give it four stars. I, I have to give it three. But a three, it's, it's a well-earned three stars, you know? It's not a it lacks in areas and it benefits in other areas. I, I, think I just couldn't give it four stars, but it's, yeah. it's a strong three stars is what I mean to say, yeah. I mean, if I were ranking this one, you know, I mean, it's clearly not as good as The Thing, Halloween, Mouth of Madness, but I'd certainly say I prefer this to The Ward or uh, Prince of Darkness. You know, so it's uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's somewhere in the middle for me, basically. It's, I'd also pick over, pick over like Ghosts of Mars as well. <laughs> oh, damn, that's a one star. <laughs> I'd go for a free, maybe a three and a half on a good day. As Alistair said, when it's good, it's good. When it's bad, it compensates in the good bits. Mm -hmm. So, you know, great characters, great actors, some good spooky build up, the scenes, music, all, all well done, but just fragmented and staggered so it's not a 100% enjoyable experience it's just enjoyable most of the time yeah the, when it's not enjoyable it's a drag so this is why I'm glad it's only 90 minutes long 
I could just say very quickly that if Ghosts of Mars was a surreptitious sequel to The Fog, i.e. The Fog, and the pirate ship therein had made it all the way to Mars to hunt down the great-great-great-great-grandchildren of their oppressors from the beginning, I just think it might have been a slightly better film. <laughs> <laughs> I have not seen the remake. I know that you guys haven't either. And frankly, the idea of spending £3.49 to watch something that... It won't have Carpenter's Charm. I know that already. I mean, I've never met anyone who doesn't think a film is shite. So <laughs> it made me want to watch it. It's a movie that the idea of a Fog remake... It's got the word, like, you hear Fog remake and your brain goes, crash, cash grab. Yeah, I mean, it's weird also because it's not like it's a huge movie they're remaking either. Know. You know, it's like, oh, we'll go trade them the good name of The Fog. And by the looks of it, what they have done is, well, going to the point that you made earlier, they've gone with a lot of CGI for it, which one of the good things about having The Fog as your body is it also means that you don't have to have to see your, uh, your ghosts all that much. In fact, it leaves a lot of the imagination. Uh, speaking of baddies that uh, that look pretty bad when you see them out for fog, let's move on to the mist. The Mist. So, I'm going to delay the chat about the ending of this for as long as we reasonably can, because if there is one film that's largely defined by its ending, at least in the uh, public consciousness, it's probably this one. But The Mist, to start off with a, a big compliment to it, this is one of those instances of a King adaptation that I think is quite a lot stronger than the source material it's based on. The Mist by Stephen King is a fairly mediocre novella. And I think what Darabont's really done here, so Frank Darabont, the third Stephen King piece after Shawshank and uh, Green Mile, of course, it seems like he was able to sort of like really connect with the heart of the novella and cut out a lot of the sort of fluff around it. It also meant that by getting rid of half the cast of characters, then it may, meant the ones that we know we get to know quite a lot better. Because really, The Mist is a character piece. It's, just, it's essentially about the monsters inside. You know, like Dawn of the Dead, you're going, oh, we're all in the shopping centre. And in this case, it's, it's not a shopping centre, it's a supermarket. They can't go outside. And then it's all about um, uh, various, uh, you know, various ways in which humans can be the real monsters. In this case, it's... Uh, sense of divisiveness it's a cell about religion people doing bad things out of fear and i think those elements are probably where the mist really peaks but let's not get ahead of myself alistair what are your general thoughts on the mist loved it so uh sorry just jumped right in there um you get your creature features is there such a thing as a creature's feature <laughs> I think that's sort of what this is. What what I'll say quickly initially really is, I mean, but I'm going to go the roundabout way of this, I suppose, uh, in the sense that 
we'll have sci-fi that humanity's reached the stars for sending uh, spaceships out to other planets and there's always some form of intelligent life there there's always something that we can communicate with reason with that has sentience like we do uh, what's interesting about this in the sense that the opportunity was there they chose uh, to go for it it's it's wildlife the, the quote-unquote villains in this they're not villains they're it's wildlife these are creatures these are animals they're trying to survive oh yeah i mean if they've just were, been chucked if, into this world if, if i mean and, and our environment and who wants to get stuck in walmart i mean <laughs> you know so these creatures are for survival and as every uh, every bit as much as the the humans are so it, you, you you can't look at the, the tentacles and that's, by the way, the impossibly tall creature. Wow, that is a great scene. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's... There's the imagination that went into this and the idea of there's no necessity to have, like, the, the Martians from Mars attacks or Klingons or Daleks. None of that, just fauna. Just the creatures coming in, being creatures. It does have that... Um, the escaped dinosaurs of Jurassic Park feel to it, uh, where you know that the di- like a tiger needs to survive. It is a carnivore. It eats mm. meat. You are mainly made out of meat. <laughs> Drizzle yourself in honey. You're going to be very tasty. It's that sort of logic. See, I I never liked the the, the bugs, the four winged pterodactyl things. Like I never hated them, but I was like. I understood the fear of them. Like you, yeah, you know what they're doing. They're not evil, but you don't want to be called up. Run, run! Don't turn the lights on. That's what attracts them. Jim, what do you reckon? What was your general thoughts on the mist? Uh, like you've already covered this. Wait, hold on. The real monsters are the people. <laughs> Setting um, up for that. <laughs> Up until the point where you, you've mentioned the lights and so on, so it's that they're all trapped in the supermarket. They're arguing amongst themselves. You know what, what's best to do? Should we leave? Should we stay? Let's hunker down. And then we start seeing the flies land on the window. And I don't know about you, but this time of year it's getting a bit hotter. You want your doors and windows open, but you you put a light on, and you've got bugs all over your living room like and that's the same thing that was happening at that point and and that's when you realize you know we're, we're going to get a oh, pardon the pun we're going to get a lot of the fly situation happening yeah. here as well so they go through that big set piece of those giant mosquito scorpion things and uh, you know some people getting fatally injured and <laughs> set on fire in some cases <laughs> Um, and that's when the, the groups start turning on each other, their religious implications start ramping up. And yeah, it just, it, uh, the, the main crux of it is just seeing how people handle themselves in this do or die situation. And obviously, with it being small town America, one of the biggest go to points is religion. And for me, that, <laughs> For me, that just kind of it, it works really well, but also to the film's detriment. 
Oh, because it, it gets a bit too much for me at times. And yeah, I know that works when it comes to showing like, you know, we've got Marlboro and so on, but it didn't necessarily have to be driven by religion. It could have been driven by just, well, <laughs> you know, six of one half a dozen of the other, just a group of idiots. Yeah, I think with religion, it feels a bit like a Stephen King box-ticking exercise at points, in as much mm. as, although Stephen King's a religious man, man in real life, uh, he always likes to show his religious fanatics <laughs> in a really negative light. You know, it's something that's very clearly means a lot to him, but he also sees it as a very destructive thing. Is this what I was actually going to uh, say about uh, Jim's take there in a film in that sense that like, the the religious fanatic, like of all of them, and I know that they're script writers because they expanded upon what was in the novella, but the uh, the leader of the religious group felt, the expiation leader, let's call it that, felt like the most like identifiably Stephen King character in the whole thing. Uh, Mrs. Like, Carmody, she was fantastic. I yeah. think that, I suppose in terms of religion, it's like, maybe I'm going to out myself as an atheist here, but I, I don't want to go all in and militantly dislike religion. I think there's good things religion has done. It's, a lot of it has provided, say, a moral compass, um, even in times before there was, you know, law, and it provides comfort for the bereaved. And I suppose the issue with when something's going well, when it's going good, it's difficult to quantify that. Like you could say the Spanish Inquisition was religiously inspired. How many lives did that cost? And that's quantifiable. So it's easier to quantify than something that's good. Um, but I think Stephen King's a religious man himself. I think he, he might have a personal, let's call it a misty bug up his ass, when someone abuses the power or position of religion, if a priest or someone like that was to do that, um, mm. I think you would have particular dislike of that. And I mean, really, it is Mrs. Expiation in this film, I think, is the actual villain, who, by the way, is, is unfortunately proved right through her predictions mm. through a lot of the film. Annoyingly, I want to save that for a little bit about the about the whether her prophecy confirms itself at the end or not. But I think you're I think you're right in that. I think Chris King. This is the interesting part is, you know, if if I'm writing supernatural stories here, this is a story where a bunch of monsters start walking the earth. I think naturally people would make that jump towards this being like the end of days. You know, you're looking mm -hmm. at this as going, okay, what's well, a mm. it's a Christian country. Definitely. And now there's a massive monster that's like bigger than a shopping mall outside. I think you would put two and two together and go, shit, maybe this is uh, maybe this is revelations. Now something that the film does, which the book doesn't, is it explicitly states that Amanda and it's religious. Amanda's a bit of a non-entity in the book, although her and uh, David do, they do shag in the book, which we don't in the film. But um, in fact, actually, David's just simply a more interesting character in the book. We'll come to that in a sec. But I, they have her go, you know, this God's a little bit too Old Testament for my liking, but the implication there is that she also yeah. uh, is religious. But yeah, with David, right? So I find him a bit of a... I, I guess we need to have a character who's a bit of an everyman, Right. You know, someone at the center of the whole of the whole thing who isn't going to lose for shit. But one of the problems I had with him is he's um, he's sort of quite dull. Now in the book, he's an adulterer, which he isn't the film, and that immediately makes him more interesting. But all 
also he's he's absolute alcoholic in the book. It's like eleven in the morning and he's on his third can of beer, right? And it's just like like it's not even like no one ever says, "Mate, you're a bit of an alky here" or anything like that. It's just it's just a facet of his character. He's consistently it's drinking Stephen beer. King in this. Checklist. Yeah, and <laughs> I think in that they went, all right, we're just going to make him a sort of default uh, default male protagonist here. I mean, something else which I thought was like interesting about the way he's characterized is he's an artist in the film right you know we see him doing the painting of uh, roland at the very beginning from the dark tower because of course uh all things serve the beam and this is you know hinting at a wider stephen king universe but at the same time him being an artist unlike say the dark half or secret window or the shining or uh, even salem's law him being an artist is in no way connected with the themes of the film or the or the novella it's really weird you know, usually, or Misery is another, another one where, you know, they, him being a writer is explicitly connected. Uh, Juma Key, you know, Juma Key, the guy is a painter in that as well, and it's explicitly connected with, with the story. And this, he could do any job. Yeah, really I, gen- I genuinely think him being that specific movie poster artist at the beginning was a dig at the way the industry has got by this point, because they got Drew Struzan to make those posters. And he he was basically he's basically being outed, ousted as the guy who makes the big Hollywood movie posters in favor of shitty Photoshop jobs, which they literally say in the film. So I just genuinely think that was the filmmaker's little dig at the industry at this point in time. Well, he's still an artist in the book as well. I, I I sometimes learn something. Thank you, Jim. I think you're totally, I think you're totally right that, that especially as Darabont had just had bad experiences with both Indiana Jones four and Mission Impossible three where he'd been working on scripts had rejected. I could see that he's a bit bit like yeah fuck the studio, but at the same time uh, he's still an artist in the novella. Um, he's not making movie posters, of, is it? But they do talk about like yeah yeah this successful campaign. His dad used to do this sort of campaign. You're like if he was a trucker, this would be exactly the same story. Like, it's just, it was just weird to have, because, you know, it's such a, it, like, if you went, all right, you're speaking to this David guy in it, you wouldn't go, ah, oh, he seems like, uh, like a creative fellow. He seems like a practical fellow with the way that he's, uh, way that he's characterized. Mm, yeah, he just seems to be the grounded everyman. That's the go-between of the, 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 the different factions. Like, you've got two extremes, and he's the one with his feet on the ground the entire time um, until we get to to the finale anyway but yeah that that's just how i see that character you know he's he's the the vessel for getting us through the film i want to say about tom james slightly in that um he's great in this film there's a lot of great actors in this film doing a really really good mm. job i kind of felt there were certain lines that um Tom Jane had that he was delivering in a kind of alpha Hollywood hero way. All right, let's do this. <laughs> He's great for most of the movie. Every now and then he'll deliver a line like that. And but like the woman that goes, she gets lost in the mist looking for her son. The the girl that gets stabbed, like she gets um. I don't know what those flying things are that have the scorpion tails, but she gets hit in the mm. neck. There's so many great performances in this. There are a lot yeah. of great performances in this. And it includes Tom Jane. It does include Tom Jane. 
is moments of I'm the male lead. Just reminding you. Do you know what I mean? That sort <laughs> of um, thing. Um, I want to I want to single out one actor for a moment that made my soul cringe. And I, I and this sounds weird in a good way. Um, he was aiming to do it and he succeeded. He, the military guy that gets stabbed in the gut mm. and he gets hoisted up. Now, I've never been stabbed like that. I, mean, I work in an office, so... <laughs> I've, I've had my fair share of paper cuts. Ooh, they hurt. So I'm imagining a paper cut, very large, very deep, and in my gut. And I'm going, ooh, don't do that. Uh, <laughs> also, he's up on, like, if, if you've stabbed in the gut, I would imagine what you want to do is lie down, curl up into the fetal position, cry if it feels right, and then hope that the paramedics arrive on time. You don't want to be hoisted up onto, like, the hands lift, raised up like a, some sort of um, sacrifice to the sun god hurled out and he's remember when he's holding on to the doors and someone pokes him in the gut and he lets go oh that I've seen this film a couple of times mm. that gets me every time I, <laughs> oh I know why he let go he, he shouldn't have let go he was going to get kicked out anyway but oh, it just gets me that see that, that I'm imagining how painful that would be and oh cringe yeah i think the human violence of this is done very well so oh. like there's a nice sense of chaos you've got as you say people on fire uh running around you know you've got like that sort of mob frenzy i gotta say though i think the cgi in this looks like shit the tentacle uh. sequence in the in the um uh, like the uh, bay thing like that whole sequence the storeroom that sequence looked awful. It looked awful in 2006. It looks worse now. The dinosaur-like mm. birds looked absolutely awful as well. And the wobbly it, sets, yeah. Yeah, it's a shame. Like, I, I've heard the black and white version, um, it looks a bit better in that. But, I believe that, yeah. Yeah, I, I, apparently he want, Frank Darbont did want to shoot this in black and white. Maybe it's partially oh about gosh, discomfort really? with using CG. Yeah, you can see bits and pieces of it on YouTube, and uh, I think the, it's a Blu-ray extra. You know the but, actor who... Do you forget the actor's name, but he was the one with the gun for the most part. Oh, Toby the, Jones. The dinosaur, but it's Toby Jones. It's, there's a moment where he's right. The actor's the guy, and you'll know from the American Pie films. This is the Shermanator. He's the ginger-haired guy that gets chewed up by the tentacles to start with. Tom Jones jumps over Toby Jones. Sorry, Toby Jones jumps over a tentacle, and obviously you could tell. His instruction was, there's a tentacle there, you need to jump over it. Uh And the people doing the CGI made no effort to proportion the size of that tentacle with what Toby (laughs) Jones is jumping over. Because the tentacle that Toby Jones is jumping over, he's imagining a very smaller tentacle than the one Mm -hmm. he's actually jumping over. It's a heroic leap. (laughs) Yeah. No, but the tentacle he's jumping over is absolutely massive. I mean, it's to the point that because as a number of tentacles come in, one's really big, and I think, I'm not going to jump over that thing. I'm going to walk around this bastard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, even, even then, it was just to get a good swing of the axe, and you could have done it from that side anyway. But yeah, that, that that's uh, CGI. It's his motif of not opening doors, by the way, because that thing could mm. easily break <laughs> that door down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah again... 
maybe it's the the light attracting them again. Yeah, the CGI. I mean, that bit specifically was the worst. That that looked. I've seen better night is Star Trek TV shows mm. attempts at CGI, <laughs> and uh, yeah, the the rest of the film luckily doesn't have. Well, they're not brilliant, but they're not as bad as those tentacles. Let's put it that way. And this is a shame because like it does these sorts of moments of tension horror quite well for the most part. Like I I enjoy this sort of documentary kind of camera over shoulder style that they have. You know, it makes mm. the whole thing look really quite immersive. Like they break for 180 rule constantly. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a few moments with when it comes to the photography that that, that does seem quite unusual. Yeah, but I thought, that, but I thought that, 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 that looked like looked really cool. Like it mm. made it, it made it feel a lot more immersive. Almost like a sort of crash zoom effect, but mm. they're not committing to it. So almost as if it starts, but then they decide against it. And you see that happen quite a lot, especially during the introduction to a lot of the characters in the supermarket. It's like lots of little just sort of just zooms in for just a second and then we go back out and it was quite unusual to see that oh yeah i think something that was really good for is that creating a sense of paranoia right because you've got this big open location and everyone's kind of stuck there like you see you see these kind of people congregating over the shoulder you know you can Mm. go in all right let's see what's going on there like when you've got uh david's rounding folk up to go hey you know round round the back right and then in the background, you know, you've got uh, you, you you've got Norton, uh, Brent Norton getting hit, getting his lot of uh, the people who are in serious denial. He's getting all of them together, and you know, mm. you just sort of see these different factions. I thought that was really cool. And I enjoyed that actually with um, with Norton, the total denial that he's got here. He got that bit where he walks out the shop and he's visibly nervous and he's absolutely shiting at thinking all right maybe i've made a mistake here but the thing is he can't go back on that because he has to be right here you know because <clears throat> like he's got so much writing on this is just nothing you know like he's going if you're going to back there's a big tentacle well i don't need to go around to back because he doesn't want to lose the sense that he's in control here and like when i first watched it i just didn't really get that i was like this guy's a moron but then you watch it again you go no he's not a moron it's just He's in a situation where he doesn't want to have to re-evaluate how he thinks the world works, essentially. He's out of fear. And everyone in this does bad things out of fear. Um, One of the bits I did like that gave David a slight edge was, you know the bit where you've got that uh, woman who's wanting to go back, she's got the two kids, who does make it out, she's a happy ending. Mm. And then you've got her... That was a good twist. Yeah, and you've got the bit where, like, you know, she's saying, "Will anyone help me?" But he suddenly holds up his son like a shield. Like, yeah. I got my own. Oh, I never thought of it like that. He does. He uses his son yeah. as a shield. Uh, and you know, there's, I think there's a couple of times where he uses his kid as an excuse. But the moral yeah. of the story is: have children, <laughs> then you won't have to die to monsters. Uh, um, I, yeah, I, did, I did think the bleak tone of this, where it's actually quite uncharacteristic for King, and um, you know, the novella is a bit less bleak than this film is. I'd say this film is a very negative portrayal of human nature. In fact, I think one of the reasons Flanagan um, tends to work quite well with King at the moment is that they're both kind of glass half full guys, you know. In this case, with King, you've got this sort of conflict between hope and uh, kind of 
of this abusive religion, but then it's also saying what faith can also be a very good thing. And in this movie, what we kind of have is, aren't people a bit shit? You know, it's, it's kind of <laughs> yeah. into this sort of tribalism here, you know, of all right, well, it's us versus them, and they're defining the them groups differently here. You know, it's that sense of, all right, they're not even stuck for resources. It's not like, for in a, for in a, a supermarket, mm. we can survive there for ages, but it's like, you know, day two, and everyone's already threatened to kill each other. And yeah. uh, I think Frank Darabont just... It's, seems it's like watching Big Brother. Yeah, <laughs> but Frank Darabont seems to have such a sort of nihilistic interpretation of the whole thing. I threaten murder just by watching Big Brother. <laughs> <laughs> the cut-off point for whether they can all get along is when they decide to go see if there's any supplies at the pharmacy to help those that have already been injured mm. or potentially fatally wounded and which is a great little sequence in itself it's fucking horrible to be <laughs> with all the uh, webbed up people and the spiders and uh, that just make, makes you itch i want to say very quickly that i think this is something that adds to the bad cgi thing because cgi is drawing attention to itself because you want to mm. look at the scorpion bugs, the pterodactyls, spiders, because they're all the ter the like the spiders, for instance, have these like upside down faces. Yeah. And you want to try and look closer and get a better look mm -hmm. at it. And then the, the closer you look, the worse the CGI gets. Yeah. The, I mean they, they could have used the mist to their advantage mm -hmm. in terms of the CGI, which they do for a lot of the uh stuff where they're looking out the window but okay. I, th I think by this point i've got myself used to the fact that it's not great so you know, i'm just going along with it by this point yeah i mean I, th I think the pharmacy sequence is probably the most convincing scare scene in the film i think that was a, was a scene of genuine suspense there you know i liked seeing the old lady suddenly getting out the uh flame mm. floor. you know she had a she had a bit of a badass moment there yeah yeah that was good and you, you, when we first see that uh the military police guy and you see that spider hatch out of his cheek and then you see the load more in his chest oh that's nasty and then mm. as they're trying to escape falls down and just the entirety of his back is missing and it's all spiders mm -hmm, oh, that, mm -hmm. that was that was mm -hmm. beautiful <laughs> that they got that right they, 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 they definitely got that right yeah what do, you, what do you guys think of project arrowhead like did you did you quite like this this sort of the if the reason they give here going all right yeah they, they this, this i suppose we can deduce the storm at the beginning causing electrical failure and then that's why all mm. this shit got unleashed. What did you think of that, like, as an explanation? Go, oh, yeah, we came, came from a different dimension. <laughs> it's silly, but I liked it. Yeah, I'm, I'm down for that kind of thing. <laughs> so, I, I think it was cool. I thought it was a great little twist. I, am, I half agree with you, Chip. Half agree. <laughs> I mean, it's, right, okay, here, here's where I would say I come from, because... This is like one of those sort of know thyself moments where they say that it's like the monkey paw. They get they get the monkey paw, they make the wish to be rich, but then the son dies. The second wish is to make bring their child back. And at mid nothing happens, and then there's a knock at the door at midnight, and then they're scared. And they use a third wish to 
I wish whatever's knocking at the door would go away and then the knocking stops. And I heard a very good example of the difference between horror and terror. Horror is not knowing what knocks at the door. Terror is knowing what knocks at the door. And I'm, I'm, you see, this is one of those points where could I, if I could, had, if I had the power to pause reality and change some of the rules, would I do it to make this film different and then see how I felt afterwards? Because I'm wondering if I would still have the military guys knowing what they did, but then never revealing mm. any of it, not one syllable of what they did. And, and that, to me, I think, mm, I because then it could still be anything that they did that caused this. And that, to me, would be intriguing. I think that I feel in my gut that as little explanation as you get, because mm. they never get into any yeah. quantum entanglement or exotic particles or anything like <laughs> that. There's no physics. Even less explanation. I, I think I, I would have liked that. I'd have been down with that as well. I mean, you know, in a lot of the cases in films like this, less is more. You've already cited Jaws. Um, but by this point, it's firmly established that the real monster is the people. And yeah, I, I think anything after that is just a little consequence. Because mm -hmm. this is the point where it all kicks off, you know, pretty much everyone has sided with Carmody at this point. And then we get to that horrible bit where they just grab the soldier, stab him in the stomach a few times, and then throw him out for the wolves. Sequence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're, you're right. Just, all right, great explanation. Knife in a gut, off you go. Like, Reeve Alistair, that, like, part of me quite likes the idea of just having the ominous scene of military guys have hung themselves. And that would... That would mm -hmm. serve as quite mm -hmm. a nice, all right, this basic confirmation, this is about Arrowhead. The different thing is you build up the Arrowhead thing quite well at the start. You know, you've got this sort of clear military presence. You know, mm -hmm. you've got the radios going off. Like, we know something's wrong. And I, I like the way that introduces that. But um, now, f this is where my bias as a big Stephen King reader comes in. Where to Stephen King readers, it's a different explanation which directly connects the mist of the Dark Tire, which is that what they've essentially done is opened up what's called a finny. And the finny is uh, something that connects different worlds in the Dark Tire. So what they're allowing, allowing to happen there is they're allowing some of the uh, monsters of the Todash region to come through into this, into this uh, level of the tire. However, if you don't watch or read this about, but without that context, I don't think you're missing much. Basically, I think it works well as um, as a sort of a brief explanation that gives them another worldly nature. But also, I suppose, for the sake of the movie, we'll, we will come to the ending soon, but for the sake of the movie, it also, allow, it also says if the military can unleash them, that the military can also potentially get rid of them. So that's also maybe maybe why they, why they emphasize that here. I mean, don't be wrong, again, the book is still there. That, I don't know if it's wanks, it constantly goes on about the book, the book, but the book is a similar explanation we get that it's still there. I mean, the Finney explanation is something Stephen King fans have imposed retrospectively, and it fits. But uh, it's the same, it's basically the same amount of information we get, and I think I think I agree, though, but less could be more. Now, something I'd say about the character drama of this 
we only meet the wife, uh, Steph. We only meet Steph once. But I do like that we get a relatively good impression of what the domestic life is like just from that one scene. We've got uh, we've got like David, Steph, and and uh, Billy. That's a kid. You've got them hanging around. They're having a great laugh together and stuff like that. We get an idea for, all oh, right, this is a nice, harmonious family. And it does give a nice sense of tragedy about, like, all right, well, she obviously isn't going to fare very well from this. And, you know, we find out later that she that she didn't. But then that's why I thought the relationship with Amanda was kind of botched a little bit. I thought that, like, she's coming in as a sort of love interest, although she they don't, they don't hook up. And aside from recognizing the actor because she, she's in the X Files in quite a good role, I mm-hmm. uh, never really uh, I didn't I didn't think she was well written. I just thought she was basically there to be like, all right, she's a woman and she'll consistently have kids thrown upon her, and she's carrying a gun that she can't use. I don't think she had enough depth to be the main supporting role in this. Out of this supporting cast, I actually think Ollie was probably will be. Keep up couldn't say Toby Young. I mean, that's a twice race for Telegraph. <laughs> Toby Jones is um is, is is very good in that role. Like I like a bit, you know, where uh where you've got Bud there saying, oh, you know, taking names and stuff like that. And he goes, and he goes, you know, take names, but shut the fuck up and listen. And then we review later the stage champion shooter. Oh, I just say very quickly that I think that um sorry. Someone like Toby Jones, who I find myself rooting for in this film, I think that um, would it be possible? Maybe this film could have benefited from having, like, you know, you get your lead actors, your main, your Mel Gibson's, your Pierce Brosnan's, the the leading man type thing, and this film has clearly got a leading man. But I'm interested to think what if we didn't have that. Because that would actually make the film a bit more, for me, I would feel it would make it a bit more, um, these aren't just, these aren't A-list actors, these are regular people trying mm. to get by. And seeing Toby Jones with the sort of, because what was his gun, you know, experience, it's not military firearms training, he was good at a fairground. Mm. And watching the son, Billy, fight with the four-winged pterodactyl and he, he's got the gun trained on it but he's waiting for Billy to take him out we, let me rephrase that not for the sun to be taken out for the sun to be removed <laughs> from the <laughs> firing line I think it's a better way to it's, uh, it's like the second that he gets a clean shot bang takes it out and it's like that characters are in my respect and I would kind of like it's almost like the film's begging for like I want a group of oddballs that are coming together to do the right thing. Yeah, but we have to go through that Hollywood formula of having yeah. like the main Tom Jane's the lead actor, and he delivers lines like well, this. What you have in because uh, because in again not from this about source material I'm just a huge Stephen King fan but mm-hmm. like with the novella the novella's written as it's uh, David's written writing it in first person it's meant to be notes that he's left behind for other people to read Stephen King imagines himself as Tom Jane <laughs> I I like the idea that um, as as he's leaving notes for others 
he's like, oh yeah, then I cheated my wife at this point. <laughs> 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 you know, it's that's, like that's a uh, not flattering I, portrayal. I think her name is Tabitha King, and is she the first person he handed us over to to have a read? <laughs> Right. The, the whole leaving notes thing, that's very Resident Evil, I guess, in this day and age. You, you get a lot of the story from memories and diaries you find around the mansion in that first game. Jim, I'm glad you said Resident Evil game and not movie, because it was movie, oh, no, no. all exposition. That was actually a segue for me saying the gunshot samples are exactly the same as the ones from the Resident Evil games, and no, it, it just just <laughs> took brilliant. me right out of it. It's oh, like, uh, okay, that's the that, man who's played too much. Did it have the same effect to you as is? I recently watched Avatar: The Way of Water. Hmm. In you know, quote unquote preparation, I watched the original Avatar. There's a four. No, if I get this right, six le- six legged leopard creature that our heroine eventually rides at the end of the film. But it has this roar. And I yeah. swear to God, the roar is like the T Rex roar from Jurassic mm. Park. It, it could quite well, but there's a, there's a lot of samples we'll hear mm-hmm. in films mm-hmm. that if you've heard them enough times, you'll start to recognize them elsewhere. Like Wilhelm scream. The Wilhelm Well, you've got that, but there's, thing, yeah. there's a very specific horse whinny that they used in The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess that after I'd played that game, I could not not hear it in films when they've used this exact same sample in like pretty much every Swords and Sandals epic and <laughs> anything with a horse. They use that one sample and it's just one of those things that just mm-hmm. once you've heard it enough times, you'll always hear it whenever it's used again. Uh, it's like there's a certain sound effect for like a Laz smashing like that pottery mm. you know no, I mean it's almost like all of the Hollywood films are drawing from the same sound pool yeah <laughs> and uh, whilst on the subject of the guns as well it, it's very satisfying to see Ollie finally give Mrs. Carmody what she's been asking for yeah. the entire time <laughs> however in the same fucking breath She's laid on the floor, arms destroyed, as if she's just been crucified. What the hell is that telling us? I loved been... wear, wearing all the Jesus, the Jesus yeah. robes and stuff. Yeah, the, the, the further through the film we get, the more messianic she becomes. Yeah. And her parting shot is uh, laid on the floor, looking like she's just been crucified. Are we saying she's been vindicated? Is she died. She just died for everyone's sins. There, like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> right, we'll come straight onto that in just one sec before we reach the the, the big bit of the ending. A couple of small things I want to mention first. Um, there was quite a nice bit where you know the beginning where he's talking about Norton, how much he hates him, right? I like that then he's like, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. You know, we're, we're going to exchange insurance, but we know they've been in court before. We get that mm-hmm. filled in. And I really liked the way that he seems generally kind of cut up that Norton's car has been bashed. Like, and then it's like they both kind of bond on this moment of loss with each other. You know, he's like, you know, he's lost his, his uh, boating house. 
and he's lost his pretty pretty darn nice car. And he's like, I can't really be pissed at this guy right now. I thought their relationship was dead good. It's when you and when you've got Norton of the other advanced job into mist, you're kinda of sad about that. You know, I thought that was I thought yeah. that was good, that relationship. Um I like it so when they, they, they they're getting along enough until he starts to tease with the idea, will he be on our side in the shopping mm. mall? I didn't like the young military lad and his missus. That was a strange addition. Although I did quite like, I suppose, conceptually, if I had him sitting around and they're like, you know what, I was always too scared to ask you out, but that kind of seems like small stuff now. But at the same time, yeah, I did, however, like when she tries to uh, bond with Miss Harmony and she's not having any of it. Well, I suppose the setup for them as a couple is she gets killed and then he just, because of everything he knows already, he's kind of got nothing to lose now, has he? So mm. I think that's the setup for his whole sacrifice scene, really. Let's get on. We mentioned sacrifice here. One of the last things that we have before they drive off into the mist is she's predictably saying we need to kill a child, right? Now, firstly, the whole thing of killing kids is kind of undermined because we do pass the eerie school bus, which I thought was very effective. We hold loads of dead mm. kids and that mm. thing. Um, but then we, but we come to the interpretive question. Is she right? Because as soon as he, as soon as he's killed his killed Billy, here comes the uh, you know, here here comes the DS Machina. Here comes the military. Everything, <laughs> everything's sorted out. The mist is about to go away, and it feels like there's two things that's trying to it, it, that you could take it either way. It's either a case of saying this is another example of how people in, in when we're scared we can do all sorts of bad things in this case uh, you know kill your own kid to try and protect him and you can look at that that just consistent with the rest of the film is tom jane is just participating in this like everybody else has done terrible things out of fear so is he now but then you could also look at this and say that was fulfilling a prophecy that as soon as he's able to as soon as he does that that's all that needed to be done and now the military will be successful in trying to get rid of the mist now, I've never taken that second interpretation, but I know a lot of people do. What do you guys think? Uh, <laughs> I think it's... I, I don't like to err on the side of that either. Um, I mean, you can read into that, but I, I just think it's a horrible gut punch of a sting in the tail just to see the film out. You know, if had he waited 30 seconds, would they have still appeared... You know, that's it's just one of those horrible need a lie down moments. <laughs> um I don't like to add anything onto that to say that Carmody was right because there there had been a couple of coincidences prior to that where she felt vindicated also at those points, like when she got hit in the face and she was made to bleed like she said would happen. Mm. You know, she's given her blood so she's fine, you know, all that sort of shit. I've been getting some peas chucked out, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a satisfying moment as well. I mean, I would have not waited that long, if I'm honest. But yeah, to to say to say she was right in that sacrificing the kid has brought an end to well, that's just not a very nice way to end it. I don't like to believe that is what's happening. Yeah, I'm saying Elsa, what yourself? 
how uh, the reason I did it, I did say I want to be supportive of the ending is because there's, there's uh, Hollywood, maybe it's America, seems to have this massive aversion to endings that are anything but all everything gets wrapped up, happy ball riding up onto the sunset. And I think that, um, like, certainly we know about Greek tragedies, Shakespeare had his tragedies, and there's not enough tragedies. The reason I won't be too hard on the ending is I think America's maybe well out of practice of doing tragedies, and the ending of this film is certainly a tragedy. And it's one that I say the ending will... The thing I think, I personally, I find that the ending of a tragedy can stay with you the film the story stays with you for longer than the ending does when you know everyone gets what they want so in this the things working against them there's one of these story writing rules that uh, pixar have and, and they've got about 13 of them but uh, one of them is and i'm sure this will come up again in our uh, next Star Trek meeting, but one of the Pixar rules is never use coincidence unless it makes things worse for the protagonist. And this film follows that rule. And it, it you can sort of see the impact of it as well. It, it's a funny one because when coincidence is used to aid a protagonist, it's annoying. When it's used against a protagonist, it's kind of entertaining. Yeah, look, I'm not, I'm not actually, I'm not criticising the ending of the film at, at all. I mean, I think it's good that there are two interpretations of it. Firstly, I think it's a very good ending, because it's one of those endings that, you know, it's, what, uh, 15 years later, and um, mm -hmm. and it's still got that effect. Yeah. You know, it's like, it is, it is, it's bleak, it's, it's bleak as all fuck, oh. but that's, that's a part of the film. I would say the character made what he felt was the right decision with the information that he had at the time. Had he known that the mist was going to clear and everything was going to be fine, I fully believe he would not have made that decision. Oh, yeah, of course. But what I'm, what I'm saying is I like yeah, that yeah, it's yeah. open interpretation whether the mist would have cleared if he hadn't done that. Mm. Like, I, I, and, I, I, but yeah, I mean, I think for me, I think it's a really good a good ending. I mean, when I saw this at the cinema the first time, there was about 10 of us in the cinema and everyone was doing nervous laughing. Like, you're like, oh, <laughs> as soon as that, the tank comes out and we're going... Well, he fucked up. The Tom James probably best moment of the movie is when he just seems absolutely broken by this. Nothing says bathos quite like a tank. <laughs> the thing is, like, usually when a character like goes down for knees and just going, oh, it usually just seems kind of cheesy. Whereas in this, it felt totally earned. You know, because you're yeah. like the absolute despair that you'd be feeling. You've just killed your son in order to try and save him. You've just killed two other old people that have been with you for the whole film, and yeah. you just killed your uh, new stand-in-love interest, right? And you and ran out of bullets for yourself. Exactly. The amount of people that, uh, that he's, he's seen die up until this point, and it's all over. You know, the idea yeah. that, hey, I actually, if I just stuck around that, that, uh, that, sh that shopping mall, that shopping centre, I'd probably be fine here as well. And I just thought that was such a, a, a great... A great finale. It was. A, it was just this utterly horrific moment of the worst thing that could happen. The thing that he was trying to prevent happen. Happen. You know, that's exactly what he's just done. And yeah, it was. I said it's absolutely you're right. It's absolutely tragic. Yeah, it is. 
it, it's a standout film for for that ending. And for me, what makes this film good in rewatch is everything I think that leads up to that ending as well. It's uh, sometimes a film's not ruined by knowing what the ending is. Mm. Sometimes Absolutely. it's the the journey, the getting there, the understanding of that process. And mm. this is one of those films. Yeah, this was the second time I watched it. The first time would have been about 14 years ago when it premiered on Sky Movies or whatever. And prior to watching it again, you know what's coming. Because that's what sticks with you, that that horrible ending. But it's testament to how good that film is, is after five minutes of the film starting, if that, that was totally at the back of my mind. I, I was focused on what was happening in the here and now and it wasn't until they had actually left the supermarket and you've got that horrible unsettling organ music that they're driving along to and you think oh fuck here we go so that's uh that's just going to show how good the film is that it it's got this massive ending this really big weight to it but it's not held down by that preceding it yeah 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 yeah, absolutely. There's really much more to much more to say in this one. <laughs> I uh, I didn't see the mini series, by the way. I imagine neither of you guys watched the mini series either. No, one of I have. Oh, is it bad? It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so I just said it takes place all over the town, doesn't it? It's not like all. It's not not all in the same shopping area. I was not surprised when it didn't get renewed for a second season. So I'll make this right as brief as I can. It has this storyline of a mayor who everyone's starving, but the mayor's hogged all the food. Um, it also has the idea that there's no creatures in the mist as much as the mist itself is the creature, feeding off of, I think, is fear. So the more scared you get, the more misty it gets. I mean, it's always difficult to tell because you have to hold stuff back for what would be a season two three four five however long you think you're going to go on for so i wouldn't say this is a show where i saw all the cards that were on the table um but what we got was a bit meh to put it that way it's yeah. not by the way if you, if you watch the film the mist and then you go to this tv series you're, you're not getting the same thing this is a completely different monster yeah it didn't strike me as a particularly uh particularly good idea to turn it into a series you're talking about taking a relatively simple novella but one which the basic premise of this this necessitates is going to be quite short basically because mm-hmm. you go well catchers can't go outside <laughs> okay well we're gonna have like eight seasons of this i would yeah i would say that the um having not read the novella myself um, and knowing what you've said about it, uh, I, I can go out on that limb and say that I think they've plumbed the depths of what the mist could be with the film. I think with the TV series, it had that beating a dead horse vibe to it. Let's do star ratings for this one. So I'm going to give this one four stars. I think it's a very good film held back by some technical issues and also, to be honest, that point, I think the ideas it's exploring are more interesting than the characters who they're using to explore them. 
at the same time, I think there's a lot of good in this. You know, it's very atmospheric, very good location, a very good cast, some really memorable scare moments, that ending. And basically just uh, on the whole, it's a movie that's stuck with me for 15 years. So, yeah, we'll give this one four stars. By yourself, uh, let's start with you, Alistair. Give it four stars too. Uh, it's got a lot going for it, more going for it than I would say than The Fog. It's a film I could, after today, see, easily see myself watching again and enjoying. Um, there's some great performances, and I think they they do more than compensate for some shoddy CGI. But it's as well as that it's the fact that it's a tragedy at the ending as well that I that we get so few of. They're so rare. Mm. Predator and tragedy when it comes. It's the ending. Apparently, Stephen King prefers that ending to the one that he wrote, which is a bit more characteristic well, of Stephen go. King, a bit more the optimistic. Absolutely. And uh, Jim, what about yourself? Why don't we go give this one? Um, I think this is what you could say is a monumental day for the Horror Cult Films podcast, in that we have been unanimously agreed on the star ratings of the films we've covered, because I have to say it's four stars as well. I'm revising mine to three and a half stars. <laughs> it's a superior film about bad weather as well. We're all in yeah. agreement on that one. <laughs> Excellent. No, okay, I'll, for, for the record, I'm sticking with four. Uh, on this moment of harmony, let's move on to the list. finish off of the list in this case jim has picked one i have absolutely no idea what he's gone with so jim what's your list well i needed a lie down after watching the mist but then i remembered i needed to do this list so i had to find something for our top 10 and you know what it's probably an obvious one but i went to the website weatherzone.com and their list of the 10 greatest weather movies ranked by awesomeness now, I'm using weatherzone.com because who better to give us a definitive list of weather-based films than people who are clearly interested in the weather? <laughs> Although I must say, this is not genre-specific, so this is just a broad list of yeah. well, pretty much all Hollywood films, but these aren't specifically horror films. But there may be one in here that we have discussed this evening Ooh. so okay. so according to weatherzone.com what do you think is in the top 10 best weather films well, presumably the mist is going to be in very out of these two the mist is in there it is at number six i take a couple wild stabs i want to say snow piercer snowpiercer is not in this list unfortunately oh, I, that film was so snowy it, 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 there was a, quite a bit in there, wasn't there? And personally, I would have probably put it up there in the top yeah. five, but no, yeah. not, not according to weatherzone.com. Is wow. Twister there? Twister is at number four. The, uh, yeah, yes. David, I was thinking of that one as well. <laughs> I was going to go with the, that or Dante's Peak, but the volcanoes <laughs> technically aren't weather. 
No, I I would have uh, not included that as a weather phenomenon. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Twister, it's a good film. You know, Jander Bond, Bill Paxton, Helen Hunt, A Flying Cow, Big Twisters. <laughs> what, what more do you need? <laughs> <laughs> so that was number four. So we've got four and six accounted for. Uh, okay. I want, I want to say the day after tomorrow. The day after tomorrow is at number eight. Is it? No way. Yeah. That's um, on the list. That movie sucked. Yeah, it did. Do you remember the sequence where they outrun the temperature in the library? <laughs> Everything's freezing behind them. That's oh, that's some magic right there. I remember that being huge when that came out back in the day, but uh, I've never given it the pleasure, so I'm not particularly fussed if I ever do. <laughs> One of the dumbest things I've ever seen in a film was in that film. I watched it at cinema. Everybody loved it at the time. Is Weathering With You on there? Weathering With You. No, but that's a good one. That's um, amazing. Yeah. That should be number one. Well, actually, I should ask, what, what year was this from? Is this like a really recent list? It was quite recent, and uh, let me see. Uh, it looks like the most recent film on here is from 2017. <sighs> and I'll give you a clue. It's probably in the same vein as The Day After Tomorrow. Ooh, uh, 2012? No, wait, back in about no. 2012, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> that year's come and gone. Um, it's... Uh, I've... <laughs> I'm just going to go straight ahead and say it's uh, Jerry Butler saves the world via satellite. Oh, shit. What was that one called again? <laughs> oh, God, I can't remember its name. Put me out of my misery. Geostorm. Yeah, okay. Yes. Yeah. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I enjoyed that one. As far as some classic ones go, right? We've got to have Singing in the Rain on there. No. Um, what? I think... <laughs> I think this one is more more a case of bad weather phenomena more than anything. The the perfect storm? That is actually on here Ah. at number three. Whoa! The perfect storm is not better than this. I call shenanigans. (laughs) The perfect storm is not better than most of these films on the list, but for a film where George Clooney and Mark Wahlberg fight the sea in a boat, I mean, it's not... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not all bad it's going to have some entertainment value <laughs> is, uh, is Frozen on there? Frozen is on there the bane oh, of parents who had children gosh. in the early 2010s is at number 5 awesome, I think that was a great film That's you're right, this is a very broad spectrum of <laughs> movies that we're drawing from here <laughs> Oh, uh, okay. I would say The Little Mermaid is that's all based under the sea. <laughs> Weather conditions. Um, well, speaking of under the sea, this is a bit of a tenuous connection. Number nine does involve sea creatures. Oh, uh, the Poseidon Adventure? Sea creatures and bad weather. Pacific Rim. Oh, oh, this be Sharknado. It is. Oh. Sharknado? <laughs> Was which, a sharkening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which I actually enjoy. I've I've watched all of the Sharknado films over the really? years, and yeah, guilt, definitely a guilty pleasure. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and say number seven because it's one I've never heard of. It's a Tobey Maguire film from 1997 called Ice Storm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what, was yeah. The, what, was, what was number 10, just so we know we got so number far? Number 10 was Geostorm. Okay, yes. Yeah, so. And we're left with basically number two and number one. And I would say these are more on the side of comedy. And they're both to do with the snow. Okay, so it's not... I was thinking Clyde, you have a chance of meatballs. Um, <laughs> let's see, comedies that involve snow. It's not Ice Age, is it? No, because that's that would have to be funny <laughs> to be a comedy. <laughs> I'd like have to say, give us your five-star review of those films at some point. I, I really hope for, like, number one, an inconvenient truth. You go, oh, that's something <laughs> funny. <one." laughs> See, right uh, now, had I not already known I was wrong, I, I would have said uh, Snowpiercer. Number two is considered one of the best dark comedies from the 90s. It's an Oscar winner and rumoured to have a cameo by Prince as a dead body. Cliffhanger. Not Fargo, is it? Fargo. Fargo. What? Yeah, it's not the spirit of the list. Like, yeah. imagine going, oh, we want to watch an extreme weather film. You go, well, it snows a lot in Fargo. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you're going to hate number one. Uh-huh. And to give you a clue, you're going to hate number one. Okay, uh, going to hate number one. So that implies the number one is snowy, but the snow is not really the point of it. It's just the location for it. And I have repeated myself. You're going uh, to hate number one. It's Groundhog Day. Oh, uh, <laughs> fuck that. <laughs> I I, to be fair, David, uh, I don't know, but yeah, I wasn't getting that. <laughs> uh, I told you you wouldn't. It never even occurred to me to have qualify it. I mean, no, you ever see no. snow in it? I mean, I guess it's like it's like Edward Scissorhands being on there. <laughs> Could leave the town because a snowstorm was coming. Uh, and it already hit the time loop story. Yeah. There was a few time loop stories. I would say it's more of a time loop story than a weather story. Yeah, yeah, By exactly. A long shot. I'd, I'd say if, if someone went, oh, I really want to watch a film about weather. Weather's my big passion in life. And then if you watch that, you go, eh. Well, <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> would anyone have the bigger passion other than weather? Were you not writing for weatherzone.com? That is true. Well, <laughs> weatherzone.com, thank you for providing us with a list. Speaking of weather, the weather here has begun to clear clear up, you know, where we can uh, we can leave the radio booth once again. I think we have had the showdown of the century tonight, or the storm of the century, to use a Stephen King reference. And I think we, we can come to the conclusion that The Mist is the superior film about bad weather. Now, thank you all for listening, everybody. Thank you guys very much for joining me here tonight. And we hope to see you guys again soon. Until then, goodbye, everybody. Bye. See ya. For news, views, and reviews, check out horrorcultfilms.co.uk.
Music by White Bat Audio.